Would you turn, <clears throat> turn with me to uh, Exodus chapter 4? This is the uh, second book of the Bible, Genesis, then Exodus. And in the original, really, there shouldn't be a break between chapter 3 and chapter 4. Moses is still before God in the burning bush, still having a conversation. Moses is still fighting the idea of his being the one to go to Egypt and speak to his people and to speak to Pharaoh. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. The Lord said to Moses, put your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of of, uh, Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words of his mouth in his mouth, and I will be your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs." Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart 
so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray together. O Lord, bless us that we will understand your word and be gripped with the reality of this great God who called Moses. Lord, may we as well give ourselves up to you to worship you to trust you, to live out the life that we have in Christ Jesus. Oh, Lord, bless us for your glory and honor. Amen. Anybody else want to teach on all this? (laughs) Some uh, unusual things here, for sure. I saw uh, recently... Uh, and watching one of the golf tournaments that a reward that someone won at a golf tournament was to be a caddy, in this case, Steve Stricker, for one hole. And for some of us, you sit there in the hot sun and think, I don't want a caddy for you. You know, I'm, I don't, I'm barely out here, much less am I going to caddy for somebody. But this was announced as a wonderful reward, you know, like a prize to win that you get to caddy for Steve Stricker. Uh, so for some people who are crazy about golf and crazy about golfers, getting to be with this golfer, talk about his golf shots, talk about golf, talk about your life with the Steve Stricker. I mean, that's a fantastic thing. Now, contrast that with someone who uh, calls you into their office, a high official in uh, the government, and says, here's our assignment for you. We would like for you to go to the ISIS main camp, we're going to put you close and you're going to walk on into the main camp. And we want you there to say to ISIS, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command that you get out of Syria, go about your business, and release all the prisoners. Anybody? <laughs> Anybody. You know, that's, that's suicide. You know what they would do to you, what kind of example they would make you in, in this circumstance, that's more what Moses was facing, right? 
That's the prospect for Moses. That's how dangerous and deadly this call seemed to Moses that he would be going before Pharaoh. And even here we see that he doesn't share God's optimism about even his own people responding, right? He doesn't even think they're going to respond to him. And so in this first point, we we learn that we must trust God to be a faithful God. Trust God to be a faithful God. Because in this passage, and, and this doesn't just take in the first part of this conversation, it really is the whole conversation that he has with Moses here. But God's basic point here is that it's not about what you are or what you can do. It's about me and what I can do. That's the constant refrain in the midst of this. And the irony in his unbelief when he says they will not believe me is that Moses is demonstrating the same unbelief. You know, in his claim, they won't believe you. Well, you don't either, obviously. You don't even want to go and say this. And so, for us, we face circumstances that cause us to think the same things. Uh, Evangelism, for instance. Let's assume you've really loved this friend well over a long period of time, and they're not a notch on your gun. Uh, But you're thinking about uh, talking to them. He knows you go to church, but you've played that down, so this won't be a test he has to pass to be your friend. And so you begin praying for the right time to talk to him about Christ, the natural time. But then you start really finding yourself protesting uh, this prospect. He'll think I'm crazy. He won't want to watch a Cowboys or Rangers game with me again. It'll make him feel uncomfortable. He will question my motives that I've had all along, thinking I've just been working him like an Amway salesman. This isn't going to go well. you know. All these things that will run through our minds. And yet, here is God saying to you, it's not about you. And it's not about ultimately their response. It's about me, the sovereign God, and my purpose. I'll handle the heart stuff is, uh, uh, the heart stuff, even if it's negative. You don't end the relationship. You don't stop caring for him. Even a negative response is not necessarily the last response. You need to know this. I am with you. And the sovereign God is working out his purpose in everything that I do. The I am that we saw in the last study means that I am with you, I'm absolutely sovereign, and I'm absolutely present to bring my goodness to you, and nothing can stop it. That's what this means. I am who I am. I am with you, my absolute sovereignty is here, and I will manifest my goodness to you, and nothing can stand in the way. You think about the pit in your stomach you get when you're going to confront a friend or or have a difficult conversation. I'm reminded of how I felt in the arch in St. Louis where you lean over this slanted wall to look out the window. So you're not standing planted with your feet. You're in a falling position and your eyes are seeing 600 feet below. (laughs) And everything in you, your body is telling you Darwin, you're about to die. You know, that's what it says to you. And it keeps giving you that signal as you're looking out. Emergency, emergency, death ensuing, death ensuing. Anybody home? Death. You know, that's, that's how I felt, at least when I was looking out there. And I've had that pit in my stomach so many times. 
in being a pastor. Let's just call it the pit, right? And the pit is telling you the same thing. Your body is reminding you, in case you didn't know, just how scared and worried you are to meet with this person, right? But it's not about you. It's about trusting him. It's about knowing him in the midst of it, knowing his presence, knowing his favor in Christ, knowing he is working his purpose in this, knowing his love for me and his love for this person, knowing he is the I am. I would put it this way. God, the I am, is unstoppable goodness on the move. That's who he is. That's what he says later in Exodus, that I have mercy on whom I have mercy. Where he says, here's my name. I am good and gracious, abundant in loving kindness. That's my name. I'm unstoppable goodness on the move. Is that who you and I believe God is? Is that who I believe he is in difficulty? Is that who I believe he is when his call comes upon me and upon his church to make known the Lord Jesus Christ? So in the first place, let's trust God that he is a God. He is a faithful God. Secondly, let's trust God that he will be a great God, that he is a great God. And now we get into these signs These signs, as you see, have to do with transformations, but transformations that speak of life and death. So a deadly serpent that's rendered back into a staff, uh, the death of disease and restoration, uh, the giving of water turning to blood, the, the ultimate sign of death. And these demonstrate that God has unlimited power Over life and death and all things. It's pointing to his sovereignty. And so these point us to say, to to believe and trust that God is a great God. It's important to realize the specific application of these signs. For instance, the the Egyptian kings would wear crowns that had a cobra, uh, striking cobra on their crown to indicate this is what they do to all of their enemies. And Ra was worshipped as a chief god in uh, Egypt. And so the, the, the crown is associated with this sun god with, with, the, uh, with the cobra. And so victory over the cobra means victory over Egypt. To render a cobra and make it helpless is to say God has all power over divine and royal power. And the staff itself is a great symbol of leadership and power and authority in Egypt. And so if the rods of Moses and Aaron become the very instruments to render Egypt helpless, it is to say your staff of authority means nothing. It is God's power that means everything. The very symbol of power has turned against you. And of course for Moses himself... The fact that he was told to grasp, and and for sure, if suddenly a snake, and you're not sure if it's poisonous or not, appears before you, I would run too, right? We would all get out of there if you're smart. Um, And then to to take it by its tail, which is a very dangerous thing, was teaching Moses that the most deadly things I will render helpless. I will protect you at all times. So what a, a, a wonderful sign for Moses. And then the the 
leprous hand, they think that leprosy was quite prevalent in, uh, prevalent in uh, Egypt. And this showed that not only Egypt's power was under God's sway, but Egypt's diseases are under God's sway. He can remove them. He can inflict them. He can do whatever he wants to. And even for Moses, this sign of, of regeneration for him, that he himself needs healing, he himself needs renewal, and he's not imprisoned by what he was, but he, the power of regeneration is in God. The power of life is in God. What a sign to you to see what he is able to do just with your hand and what that would mean he's able to do for your whole life, your whole existence, to bring death out of life. And then, of course, the Nile. Uh, They say something like 30 feet of mud annually was brought into the delta. So every year, the, the Nile waters washed and cleansed and renewed and increased Egypt's soil. So it had celebrated fertility and great uh, wealth and power. Uh, it was full of fish. It was full of birds. Uh, one scholar says it was endless in its bounty. They sang its praises continually. It was called the father of life, the mother of all, the manifestation of the God, Hopi the divine spirit that unceasingly blessed the land. So to threaten and destroy the Nile was to threaten and destroy Egypt itself, its whole source of life and meaning. Its greatest God is just rendered nothing in the power of God. So this indicates, of course, the Lord's power over uh, Egypt itself, his great power of victory over this a great uh, nation in the world at that time. And then later, as he describes what will be done to the firstborn in verses 21 through 23, we see more of the great signs of God's unlimited power. And here, punishment fits the trespass, right? And this is so often in the judgment of God showing his great power in that you kill my children, you want to hold on to my firstborn, I will kill your firstborn. I will remove them and as I save my own. You may remember what God says to the serpent, uh, that he shall eat the dust. Oh, you're going to make my Adam and Eve eat what they shouldn't have eaten? Well, you're going to eat dust for the rest of your life, for the rest of your existence. And in the most ultimate way, the hell itself is the most terrible judgment because what happens in our lives is that we, we say, if, if we reject God, we say, I don't want you. I don't want your authority. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to be independent of you. And finally, if that continues till death, God says, okay. You're going to get exactly what you wanted. You're going to be independent of me. You're going to be cut off from my goodness. And the irony is that all the while we are saying no to God, we are depending on his daily goodness to us. Every day. Depending on the fact that we'll have food or relationships or or entertainment or vacations or work or whatever it is. And that's the only way we 
are confident, you might say, to reject this God is that we have all of these good things. And we don't realize that when in that final day, judgment is brought upon us, all those good things are gone because we finally get what we said we wanted. We don't want God. And so God's judgment, God's sovereignty over this world is expressed in these signs. And so we're to believe in his greatness We're to tremble at his power. We ourselves to submit, but more than that, to believe in the great work of God that he will do in this world. Because our sign, our great sign, as Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 12, he said, you're asked for signs. There will be no other sign given you to this generation than that of Jonah, who was in the fish for three days. And he said, here's your sign, the son of man will be buried, and three days later, he'll be raised from the grave. That's your sign and my sign, together with this sign of the Lord's Supper. The sign that we have is that Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead. He brings victory over all things. He brings new life, ultimately, to this whole world. He brings his sovereign grace and goodness and transformation, ultimately, to all things. And that's our sign. That's the banner under which we live. He had these signs to trust God for his great power. We have the very resurrection itself. And you get to get a little flavor of what this means when Paul says in Philippians 3, as he says, we're waiting for a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And in that phrase in Philippians 3, he says, Because he has power to subject all things to himself. See, that's what the resurrection conveys to us. We worship the one who has the power to subject all things to himself. So this great power that we're going to see exhibited in Exodus is just a preview of the greatest power shown in the resurrection itself, which will bring about Truly, finally, the resurrection of the whole earth. That's our sign. So we trust God to be a faithful God. We trust God to be a great God. A great God. Thirdly, we trust God to be a good God. When uh, Moses says in verse... uh, 13, oh my Lord, please send someone else. This is clearly what he means, but if you uh, get to the literal statement, it's as uh, Oswald says, the phrasing was much more polite and carefully ambiguous. It's more like this Excuse me, sir, but please send whomever you would like to send. Okay. He was saying, don't send me, but that's how he put it. You know, please send whomever you want to, you know. And another scholar says, and this from a man who supposedly was not good with words, right? (laughs) Here he is being very subtle, very ambiguous, carefully saying what he's supposed to say. It's also the indication that he probably wasn't so slow with his words because uh, Stephen says that even before this in Egypt, he was mighty in word and deed. And, and later it talks about his mighty words. Uh, so he's probably begging off here uh, more than that he had a speech defect or something like that. 
And then again, in verse 11, he's asking this question, uh, who made man's mouth? Who made him mute, mute or deaf or seeing or blind? I am the Lord. And so the question comes to this, who is God in my world, right? I didn't make myself. I didn't choose my gifts or circumstances or opportunities or hindrances or weaknesses. And here's the thing for us. Don't allow, even if you do have those limitations or weaknesses or the possible negative consequences you've cooked up in your head to crowd out the to God himself. And that's what we do. Our fears take the field. Okay. And God is pushed to the edge and we're not governed and motivated by the mighty power and capacity of God. Our fears dictate the way things are as this was happening with Moses right here. And so we're saying to God in that point, you don't matter. I matter. I define you by my weakness, not the other way around. And yet, of course, as Paul wrote, his strength is made perfect in my weakness. His strength defines the situation, not my weakness. God defines me. I don't define God. And I must not allow my fear to dictate what God will and will not do. Our fear can actually define God's willingness to do us good. I know there are promises galore in the word about mercies being new every morning and all things working together for good. And he will freely give me all things and goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. But I declare out of my sovereign, rich and wise resources of my own fear, none of it is true. Right? It's amazing how fear can be my God and I have certainly experienced that. So that according to my fear, God is not who he says he is. He's not the I am who I am. He is not the God of unstoppable goodness on the move. That's not who God is. And so here we see in this flight of his fear how God can be remade into being something he is not. And how we deny his goodness So we trust in God to be a God of faithfulness, a God of greatness, a God of goodness to us at all times. And for us, the goodness is defined in a way that we have to say it wasn't for Moses. I mean, later the Lord revealed, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll be gracious on whom I have gracious. And he says, here's my name. I'm abundant in loving kindness. I'm I'm slow to anger, etc., But we have defined God in the person of Jesus Christ, right? And, of course, we've said it so many times, but here's Paul's logic, right, in Romans 8.32. If he didn't spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? That's Paul's logic of what God's about in your life. If, if God was going to withhold something, he might have given you everything, but in the end say, but I just, I'll do all these other things for you, but I, I, I just can't give you my son. I, I, I just can't. Well, Paul says, no. He says, I'm giving them my son. 
I'm giving them everything. I'm giving them all I have. If he would not spare his son, how will he not with him freely give you all things? We're to trust God to be a good God in the face of our fears. And isn't it encouraging as you do experience fears and you do make your excuses before God? It's not to excuse your excuses, right? But isn't it remarkable that God engages with Moses this way, that he reasons with him, that he responds to him, that he answers him, that he carefully takes away his excuses and finally convinces him, especially through the Zipporah uh, incident. Uh, But why not, you know, why not do it this way? Moses is talking and suddenly his mouth is just sealed like Neo's in the Matrix. What's wrong? Cat's got your tongue? Now you really can't talk. How about that? How about going and, and, and talking or you'll never talk again? You know, some kind of hard move like that. But, of course, God does sometimes bring difficulty in our lives to teach us and discipline us, no doubt. But just note the tenderness and patience with Moses. And you have to identify with Moses' struggle like you would be arguing about going to talk to ISIS, right? You'd be giving every excuse in the world. You'd be saying, this, just not, this isn't going to work. I know this isn't going to work. I've watched what they do. I, my head's going to be gone. It's not going to... That's how Moses felt. And so we can identify with Moses' fear uh, and yet the tenderness and patience and the dignity with which he treats Moses. Responding, even giving him Aaron, which you see was planned all along, but still... It was given in response to his concern and his fear. And I want to just say this uh, to end this section. If if God responds in these ways to this, how is he going to respond when you're bringing as arguments for him to act the very promises of his word? You think he's not going to listen to you and engage with you? I mean, later we see time and again where Moses and others plead with God on the basis of his promises. You promised that you would do this. You promised you would save this people. Don't, don't, Lord, hurt your glory by not following through on your promise. And God, of course, listened. And so be encouraged that God will bear with you, that he'll talk with you, so to speak, through your struggles and your sense that he's abandoned you and he's calling you to do something that you just can't do. God will bear with you and all the more if you begin to bring before him his promises uh, as to why he should act in a certain situation. So, We have to believe that God is a God of faithfulness and of greatness. He's a great God. He's a God of goodness. And then that he's a God of compassion. And so we get to verses 24 through 26. All right? The weirdest, one of the weird passages. This happens so abruptly, uh, critical scholars think it's just been injected somehow. But others note that it's... uh, been there a long time. It's meant to be there, and it has a specific purpose there. Now, you have to bear in mind that he apparently had, obviously, had not uh, circumcised at least one of his sons. And we need to see what this means. 
this is an outward denial of God, the God of their fathers, the very one that Moses was coming to say, the God of your fathers has sent me. Well, not to have that sign uh, would be a denial. Technically, we might think it's possible to believe in Christ while at the same time one refuses to be baptized or refuses to be outwardly a part of God's people. But Paul says in Romans 10, without confession, there is no salvation. He says, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And that confession and identification is made through baptism. So the indication is if, if you don't want to outwardly acknowledge him and his people, then you've really not been rescued. And so for, for Moses, this was a critical thing. Is your heart uh, truly for me and will you express it in circumcising your son? It was a way not to circumcise your son. It's a way to say God doesn't matter. Like the fruit in Genesis 2, it seems that God shot a gnat with a shotgun that they ate one piece of fruit and yet the whole world is plunged into uh, oblivion or into the fall, the curse. But this fruit, this tree represented the whole relationship between God and man. See? It stood for our trust and our love and our allegiance and our honor and our adoration. So when they took the fruit and ate it, they turned their backs on God. They abandoned him. They denied him, despised him, rejected him. They decided to put themselves at the center of all things instead of God. And so Moses, by not confessing outwardly, was saying at least outwardly that he rejected God. And most importantly, I think is that the covenant was the sign of God's abundant promises. See? It was the, the, the sign of the promise of spiritual transformation, the promise of His presence, the promise of protection, the promise of inheritance, the promise of being a blessing to the whole earth. You see, that's the critical thing. Not to take on the sign is to reject the gracious promise. Say, I don't need your promise. I don't want your promise. That's why this was so important. That's why it actually says that God sought to put him to death. Because if we reject the promise of God, we are lost. If we reject the great faithful promises of God, we are dead, though we live. So you can tell by Moses' answers up to this point, his struggle, that he really was struggling to believe the promise of God, that this outward sign had a correlation with his heart. He can't go to Egypt depending on his own resources, rejecting these promises of God. He has to go helplessly but expecting the promise of God. Think of him at the Red Sea. He was a transformed man. He didn't at that point abandon ship. I mean, here's the army coming, the Red Sea. He believed and expected in God's promise to be fulfilled. And so this was a pretty critical phase right here, a critical critical event. And Moses apparently was incapacitated. It would be his job to do the circumcision. Zipporah jumps to the rescue as we've seen women do this far in uh, Genesis. Whereas the women in chapters 1 and 2 saved God's uh, children from the wrath of Pharaoh, she's saving Moses from the wrath of God. 
So things are stepped up a bit. And you notice that it says he sought to kill Moses. He didn't execute a direct hit, which he could have, but he somehow brought him to the point of death or some way looked like he was going to die. But he gave space for change, space for action, space for repentance. She apparently knew what the issue was, and uh, she acted quickly. Now, everything from the hips to the feet is called feet in uh, Hebrew language. So she may have touched him where one would associate the circumcision, that is, to apply the son's blood to him for his salvation. And the action here anticipates then Moses' action later as he intercedes for Israel and turns away God's wrath. And so now Moses becomes completely dedicated to the mission. He is redeemed, as it were, through this sacrificial blood. And when she calls him a bridegroom of blood, this is not a statement of anger. Look where you've gotten me. Look what's happened to me. Uh, this is actually uh, a statement that has that, that Casuto interprets this way: "I'm delivering you from death. I'm restoring you to life by means of our son's blood, my bridegroom, a second time, a bridegroom acquired by blood." Motir says, puts it this way: "Moses, you're back with me. You're my bridegroom and husband all over again." Instead of taking you from me, God has given you back to me because of the blood of circumcision. My bridegroom of blood, she greeted him when he came back, as it were, from the dead, as if we'd gotten married all over again, and you're my bridegroom once more. So really, this is a tender statement, pretty amazing statement of the restoration of Moses uh, through this blood. And of course, uh, we... This, I don't think the text teaches this, okay? But certainly there is an amazing analogy that we are bridegroom of blood, right? We are purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And we're owned. And, and the, the sign of how much we are valued is the precious blood of Christ. That's argued repeatedly in Scripture. You're not redeemed with silver and gold, Peter says. You're redeemed with the precious blood of the Lamb. Who has no blemish. And so we trust that this God is a God of faithfulness. He's a God of, of great, He's a great God, a God of greatness, a God who is compassionate, a God who is full of goodness to us. And just quickly to say at the end, we trust Him, we trust in the very call of God. This whole thing is about the call of God upon Moses. And yet there's a call upon our lives as well. The, the call of God for us is described in such beautiful terms. It's, it's a holy calling we read. We're called into fellowship with Christ. We're called to belong to Jesus Christ. We're called according to God's purpose. We're called in shalom. We're called in the grace of Christ. We're called to freedom. We're, we're called for every good and every, uh, good deed and every work of faith. 
we are called to suffer in his name. And most of all, it speaks of being called to eternal glory again and again and again. We're called to an eternal hope. And so we get to live out our call and respond to his call. And here's the wonderful thing. His call is a sovereign call where he draws us to himself powerfully and he brings about all of these things in our lives. And we live out, we live out the call of God, you see. It it is something we respond to and it's outwardly, but it's this inward response to what God powerfully does for us in Christ Jesus. The, The word call in the New Testament is a sovereign work of God by which He brings about all that he commands us to be and to do. That is encouraging. You live by the sovereign call of God that you will and have come out of darkness into light. Even to the point, as it says in 1 Peter 2, 9, that he's called you out of darkness into light, that you may proclaim his excellencies. That's his call. By his grace, you will proclaim his excellencies. And you'll do it with some measure of joy. And you'll be used of God to glorify his name. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the revelation of your greatness in this passage. Your goodness, your compassion, your faithfulness. Oh Lord, may we be encouraged. May we grow in your grace and give ourselves completely up to your will. For Jesus' sake, amen.